to Nanny Odds Book Club, a Discworld podcast. Join us as we read through all 41 of the fantastical and outrageous Discworld novels. I'm Tessa. And I'm Mr. Blue Sky. No, I'm Nigel. <laughs> this is Episode 6, Pyramids. Pyramids is the seventh Discworld novel published in 1989, so same year as Guards Guards, and is the first sort of standalone novel in the Discworld series. It is the first part of a two-part, loosely tied-together set popularly called Ancient Civilizations by Discworld fans. I'll explain that a little bit later in the podcast. Pyramids is generally considered to be one of the strangest entries of the Discworld series, probably accounting for the fact that there are no adaptations of it. And I do have to issue a formal apology here because I thought that The Color of Magic was the only book with chapters or novella entries, but this one is also divided into books, although they are not really novellas the same way that The Color of Magic is, they function more like chapters. I opened Pyramids and I took one look at it and I'm like, oh, Tessa was wrong. I was wrong, and that's because I've only read Pyramids once, which we'll also probably talk about again later in the podcast. Book one is the Book of Going Forth, which refers to the Book of Going Forth by day. Book two is the Book of the Dead, which is a more direct reference to the Egyptian Book of the Dead. Book three is the Book of the New Sun, spelled S-O-N, which is a pun on the title of the Gene Wolfe science fiction novel, The Book of the New Sun, S-U-N. And book four, finally, is the Book of 101 Things a Boy Can Do, which is sort of a nod to those like sports books that, or like, survival books that they used to advertise for like boys like here's a hundred things that a boy can do in fact i think there is actually a book titled 101 things for a boy to make which is like a 1930s book along those lines in pyramids tepic is the heir to the throne of jelly baby i love how that's pronounced an ancient tiny river kingdom wedged between ephibi and sort all his life, Tepic has known that time goes on in Jelly Baby, but nothing really changes, and the dead must be placed into pyramids in order to go into the afterlife. When he is sent to Ankh-Morpork to learn a trade at the Assassin's Guild, he is introduced to a whole new way of thinking and way of life. But when his father dies, he is drawn back to Jelly Baby to take his place and build his father a pyramid bigger than any built before. But no one is prepared for the dimensional distortion caused by such a giant structure, and things get weird when the gods start to roam the kingdom and the dead refuse to stay dead. So, first off, Nigel, what was your initial reaction to Pyramids? I didn't care for it. I didn't care for it either, but I want to hear why you didn't care for it first. I thought it was just terribly boring. I don't know, because the concept of it seemed quite interesting. You know, it seemed like it would be kind of like a court intrigue book from what I read in the back and stuff. Yeah, you know, like, it seems like it was going to be something different. Like, when the character of Dios was introduced, that the, he was going to be very much like... He was going to be the Jafar to... I, I pronounce it Tepich. Okay. This is a thing. This is, I don't know, I pronounce it with, I think it's called a palatal C. It's, I don't remember, it's from Old English, and it's either the palatal or velar C, which they indicate with like a C with a little dot on top. There's a lot of that in Old English, like most C's that you see are pronounced ch if they're in the middle of the word. 
like the old English word for witchcraft is W-I-C-C Ash. So that's A-E put together, C-R-A-E-F-T. And it's uh, witchcraft. Wouldn't this be more based on like Egyptian though than old English? It would be, but like that's what I'm bringing to bear on it, I guess. Ah, so er- I like, see. When, when I read it in my head, it was just tepich. And now hearing you say tepic, I'm like, hmm. Because it, it's tepich, tepichaimon, and then also like ethabi. I guess I went with like a Greek-ish pronunciation of the... See, I was thinking Thebes. Yeah, so that's kind of where I was getting my pronunciation from. Listeners, if you know the correct pronunciation of any of these words... Oh, I have a Greek friend. I'll go ask Phoebe. I'm going to, I'm going to message her now, and if she gets back to me while we're on air, he will be in this episode. Okay. Anyway, so yeah, I thought that Dios was going to be like this Jafar type character, and then it kind of just turned into more just humdrum, I guess. Like, I, I get that's the whole point. Like, obviously, in Jelly Baby, nothing moves forward, but I really reject this notion that if a book is boring, it's because the author wants it to be boring. People have said this to me about 1984. It's written like that because you're meant to feel how bored Winston feels. And no, it's just a boring book. That's the same way I felt about this. There were obviously some really good moments. Like, I really liked the bit at the start where he's in Ankh-Morpork. But I mean, like, Ankh-Morpork is an interesting city anyway. So, like, anything which takes place there by proxy is interesting. Some of the stuff to do with the physics of the pyramid, I've mentioned before, I really like world building and cosmology. And the pyramid was interesting. And the world that they go into when the pyramid explodes. That was quite good. I agree with you about the beginning. And actually, so I only read Pyramids once. And I think I was a teenager. And part of that is because I think I found it boring then. But I didn't really remember that when I was reading this again. I just remember not really liking it as much. I thought maybe I hadn't read it again. Because this is a standalone novel in that none of these characters, we don't really see them again. Like, they are not the driving forces of a series in the same way that, like, the witches are, or death is, or the city watch is, right? Like, this is a self-contained story. And so I thought, well, maybe it's just because I'm not invested in that story. Maybe that's why I only read it once. Now, I I will say that it is part of this like two-part thing called ancient civilizations because the one that goes with it is small gods which is the other ancient civilizations and that takes place in a or a however you want to say it and the philosophers that you meet in pyramids are also in that book they're not main characters like they're not main characters in this book but you do see them again and so that's kind of the one connection between the two but other than that it's a pretty standalone novel I liked the first 72 pages of this book. That's very specific. Well, it's it's the book of the going forth. Oh, <laughs> I see. Like I see. everything everything up to the book of the dead. I really really liked. I actually think with some small tweaks, that book of the going forth section could have been a really interesting short story because I really liked the way that it was structured. I liked seeing Tepic or Tepich as the assassin going through his final exam, that was very interesting. And the way that it would flash back to his childhood and talk about how the time time doesn't really go on 
or time goes on, but nothing changes and everything seems doomed to repeat itself in this small kingdom. I really liked that. I think it was really well written. I thought that the pacing was really interesting. And I liked the idea of someone who started somewhere, moving somewhere else, gaining, like becoming closer to that culture and then reflecting on where they came from, like how you don't ever really escape where you came from even though like you kind of know that it wasn't a good place that I I really enjoyed all of that but then when we got back to Jelly Baby like after he becomes the king and then he like moves back everything after that was so slow and I should I should say when I read a book I usually read it in 1 to 3 sessions like I hyperfixate on books especially books that are this short and just kind of get through them I read the first 72 pages in one sitting It took me like four times. Like I tried so hard to get through the rest of this book in one go. I kept falling asleep, which I almost never do when reading a book. So that should tell you something about the way that my brain was just sort of rejecting the pacing of this book after the first 72 pages. It's definitely like doesn't go anywhere for a while. So let's, which is kind of the point, but like you said, is it a good enough point to sustain our interest? I'm just thinking about it now. There is good examples of this where it's like in a series of unfortunate events, Lemony Snicket does this quite well where it's like, like he'll have Klaus reading a very boring passage and he, he's getting really tired. And so he can't, or so he ends up reading the same sentence over and over again, but he'll repeat that over, like he'll repeat that three times. So you get the effect of Klaus reading the same sentence over and over again because he's tired. You know, so like it does work. I don't think it works in pyramids. I don't think it does either. And I have I have a sneaking suspicion that I know why, but I'm curious to know what you think. Let's talk about Jelly Baby, the old kingdom. It's clearly supposed to be an ancient Egypt stand in. It's a river kingdom, right? So the, the Nile is obviously the river that Jell is based on. You know, everything, everybody lives within this narrow strip of ra- land that's around this river. There are the pyramids, which are like very important culturally and aesthetically. This is supposed to be an ancient civilization, much like Egypt. What we find out is the reason why everything seems to be repeating itself is because the pyramids, they basically are these structures that steal time and hoard time. And that's what they they use to keep the dead contained within their structures. And so the it's stealing time from the kingdom and so everybody's sort of stuck in this one time period in this one place everything moves super slowly i tepic at one point compares it to like living in a boiled sock it kind of just feels like everything's recycled you're sort of reusing bath water in a sense what did you think about jelly baby as a setting as a kingdom for this book i won't say the worst because like Stolat in I was about to say Faust, no, um in Morph, it like it's not developed enough to have enough character. It's definitely the weakest main thing because like if it weren't well described, then I might give it a pass. But it is very well described, and we understand a lot of what goes on in Jelly Baby, but it doesn't seem interesting at all aside from the pyramids which i I think that's an interesting metaphor for like the stuffiness of tradition the fact that it's like trapped time it's stealing time and instead of progressing i don't like the royal family 
I think the royal family in England is a good example, is a good practical real-world example of the pyramids in pyramids, where it's like, this is a holdover from this great age of stealing everyone's land and putting things in museums that don't belong to them and generally being dickheads. Like, they're still there for some reason. Like, they hold no political power, but they're there. And also, how old is the queen really? How long has she been there? Dios could learn a thing or two from Queen Elizabeth. And it's funny because Terry Pratchett actually mentions the royalists at one point. I've got to find this quote because I did think it was very funny. Yeah, while you while you look for that, I have another thing. Well, I have one other thing related to the setting and then another thing. Yes, please, please go on. I just think it's really funny the fact that the book called Pyramids is not in source. We've spent all of yes. these books, every single book so far that we've read has had a reference to the Great Pyramids of Sort, and this is not in source, <laughs> which is so funny to me, because <laughs> we've read them out of order, but the way we have it here, it's just like, it's deliberately like like a bait and switch moment almost. Right, and Sort and Ephebe are supposed to be Troy and Greece, right? Like these two powers that have been at war with each other, and the only reason they're not currently at war with each other is because Jelly Baby is in the middle of them. Yes, that was another funny moment, I think. The whole, like, arms race, but they're just building wooden horses. <laughs> yeah, the war of the wooden horses, because they everybody knows that generals fight the last war, and so it's whoever can trick the other one with a wooden horse. Also, do you know what I discovered? Obviously, this is not... This is, okay, to a certain subsection of people, Discworld fans, and also another group, which I won't mention at the second, like, it, it's blatantly obvious, but it took me rereading Bridge of Clay to realize this, to make the connection, because the last time I read Bridge of Clay, I hadn't read Mort. Stolat, the kingdom of Stolat, the word Stolat is Polish for 100 years, and is traditionally used to mean happy birthday, so when they sing happy birthday, they sing Stolat. Interesting. I had, I did not know that. That's really cool. I didn't know that, but then in Bridge of Clay, their mother, Penelope, is from Poland, and she sings Stolat. And I was like, hey, I recognize that from Discworld. <laughs> yeah, okay, okay, I found the quote. So it's it's actually Dios- Excellent stalling. Excellent yes, stalling it, on my part. If, yes, I congratulate you. So Dios, <laughs> this is when Dios, like, loses it because the gods actually show up in Jelly Baby, and he's like- they're, they're, they're my gods, and they'll learn to do what they're instructed. He felt like a royalist might feel, a good royalist, a royalist who cut out pictures of all the royals and stuck them in a scrapbook, a royalist who wouldn't hear a word said about them, they did such a good job and they can't answer back, if suddenly all the royals turned up in his living room and started rearranging the furniture. I, I thought that was great. I mean, I think it would mean something perhaps more to someone who comes from a place where there is a royal family, but I still thought it was very funny. Yeah. Like, because there are people like this, I imagine. Oh, yeah, no. There are, like, a massive subsection of people in England who are just, like, unquestioning supporters of the royal family. And they're one of my favorite subsections of people to rile up on Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not trying to be edgy and controversial, but it's fun, especially as an Irish person whose country has suffered a lot under the legacy of British colonialism. It's funny to be like, to poke fun at them and see their reaction, but it's also like, 
why? Why are you such a big fan? The royal family has never done anything good for the people within the last, like, I want to say 500 years, really. All they do is they just take up taxpayers' money and it's very expensive on the taxpayer in Britain when they want to throw a party or like a jubilee or something. So yes, England might have colonized Ireland for 800 years, but we have won the Eurovision more times than them. So who's really <laughs> winning? I, I like how this podcast gets more currently political the farther we go, which is hilarious because I don't think Pratchett is very interested in modern US British politics, but but we're getting more invested in political things. Yeah. Hey, Tessa, did you know we sent a turkey to the Eurovision? Really? Yeah. He's called Dustin the Turkey. <laughs> He's, uh, he, <laughs> and he won. It was in 2008. <laughs> I mean, I would be into it. I, I would have voted for the turkey. You should look up the song. I'd recommend it. It's called Irlande Douze Point. <laughs> I will I will look into it. The other thing that I thought was really interesting about the pyramids, so I had to actually look this up, how this was supposed to work. And there's a critic named Stefan Ekman who actually, he wrote a book called Here Be Dragons, Exploring Fantasy Maps and Settings. And he hmm. says that what's happening here in this novel is that this is a time polder, which is a bubble comprising a particular slice of history and a particular bit of geography. So in this particular polder, which is jelly baby history is repeating itself through dios because dios is seven thousand years old and so it's constantly he is constantly enacting the same history over and over again and nothing changes because the pyramids are basically stealing time from the future sorry just how how did how is he spelling polder p-o-l-d-e-r aha i see that's where i know the word from it's a polder is also the artificial bit of land that they build um in places like the Netherlands out on the water. You could argue that Jelly Build Baby as a piece of land is also constructed, right? Because not not just because like all borders are essentially constructed. I mean they're all like things that we have imagined collectively, but like also because it in and of itself exists separately from the rest of the disc world. Uh, to a lesser extent at the beginning of the novel because of the pyramids. And then, of course, once the Great Pyramid is made and it like rips it out of reality and turns it 90 degrees right in the dimensions, then it like actually exists separate from the Discworld. Ekman argues that a central theme of the novel is struggling to break free from the polder and to leave like those traditions behind, like to leave the repetition of history behind. Oh, I don't want to like, I don't want to sound denigrating towards people who do critical theory, but I feel like this is kind of blatantly obvious. Yeah, yeah. Or at least it was for me in in Pyramids. Like, that's that's the one thing really that I took away from the message of the novel. Discworld books have a lot of morals to take away from, but I feel like the one and only discernible moral message from Pyramids was like, don't allow yourself to be constrained by historical tradition. Like, just because it was the done thing doesn't mean that you need to do it too. Yes, I mean, and I agree that perhaps that's not the most astounding observation. I just was looking for a word that I could use to describe Jelly Baby, and time polder seems like a particularly apt one. <laughs> yeah, I like that. So I think I, I've identified what my problem with the book is, what makes it so boring. 
I just don't think that the jokes that a lot, some of the jokes are very funny in this and some of the world building is very good. I want to definitely talk about some of the imagery that we get later in the novel when Deli Baby is sort of turned around. I think that Pratchett here is relying a bit too much on some stereotypes of the old kingdom. And I don't, I think it's made the writing a little lazy. Because, and I hate saying that because I love Pratchett. There's like a stereotype, I think, about really ancient civilizations. Edward Said talks about this in Orientalism. There's a stereotype that ancient civilizations... My nemesis. Yes. There's a stereotype that ancient civilizations that exist elsewhere, right? That aren't England or Europe or the US. That they are stuck in time and that they can't ever really escape it, that they're just sort of destined to be primitive always. And of course, that's like very racist and very like, oh, they're over there. And I don't think that Pratchett's trying to evoke that, but I think by relying so much on stereotypes and this plot point about the time polder that he might be inadvertently evoking some of those things. Like, Ankh Morpork is much more developed than Jelly Baby, or that... A Phoebe is much more developed than Jelly Baby because, you know, like one is supposed to be Greece and the other is supposed to be Egypt. And don't you know the people in Egypt are all like stuck in their ways, whereas the people in Greece invented democracy. And it, it's not like he's saying democracy is great or that it's particularly progressive or anything like that. But it does. It just doesn't feel well developed. It feels more like he's like pointing at things that we should that we already kind of know because of our his our cultural and historical understandings about Egypt and saying, huh? Huh? Yeah, I wish I had gotten time to listen to this, but like, I feel like, so shout out to the complete discography, another amazing um, Terry Pratchett podcast, but there, the description for their episode on pyramids, because like, I try and not listen to their episodes until we've done our episode, but I'm really interested in their, and like, I know it probably speaks to my position of privilege as a white person in the like western world where i read this book and i was like something is wrong with that but like i don't know enough to like pinpoint it and obviously like yeah i've read a bit of saeed i'm not a fan of saeed but like yes but i think they put it really well yeah what was probably somewhat funny pop cultural references in 1990 turned out to be surprisingly offensive orientalism in 2020 and again, I don't think he's trying to do that on purpose, but it kind of ends up reading that way. And it doesn't feel fleshed out because those things never feel fleshed out. And it doesn't feel like none of these people feel like real characters to me, except for Tepic in the first 72 pages. Like he felt like a real character to me then. But then as the book goes on, he feels more and more like a stereotype. It was really hard for me to care about him. and like what he was doing and it was really hard for me to care about most of the other characters as well because they weren't real people it just felt like they were just kind of a vague assortment of oh he's a prince that doesn't like being a king and tracy is a a kind of airheaded but plucky handmaiden (laughs) you know like it just they all felt like little tropes like and you even said like dios comes across as like a jafar character yeah, I and mean, like he does make the like. Ter- I I I can't remember the can't remember the page number. So trying to find it would be quite 
hard, but I think it's around when Dios is introduced where Pratchett does point out, like, you know, the, the whole, like, vizier type, how they're always a certain type of person. Yeah. It's a bit, I don't know. I also want to see, like, on Tracy. Can we talk about Tracy? Yes, please, let's do. What did you think of Tracy? Hated Tracy. Hated Tracy. I didn't like her either. I just felt like she was... I, and I usually like the empty-headed, like, air-headed characters. Like, I, I've been talking about One Tree Hill a lot recently because we talked about it on Monkey this last episode. I don't know what that is. Well, there's a character called Bevan, and those of you who've watched One Tree Hill will know that she's amazing and she's my favorite. But Tracy just didn't, like... Again, she felt like a trope. She didn't feel like a real character. She felt like, oh, well, because she, we have to have a lady in here, and she has to be a handmaid. So I wasn't convinced by her. I wasn't convinced by the apparent attraction between her and Tepic, which just seemed to be because she wasn't wearing any clothes. Like, I, I just didn't, I wasn't invested in it. Yeah, Tracy feels like... I don't know. She feels like a stereotype of a woman, which was written by someone like Stephen King in the 1970s for a men's magazine. That's what she feels like. She feels to me like Marion Ravenwood from Indiana Jones in the part of the movie where she's not wearing very many clothes. <laughs> That's what it felt like to me. But also, like, it's really weird because... Then they, like, parody, like, a scene from history later on where she is in the carpet and she's transported onto the, the ship, right, with Tepich and what's the other guy's name? Chitter. Chitter, yeah. Where, like, that's a real-life thing which Cleopatra is claimed to have done where she fled the burning and sacking of the city by getting rolled up into a carpet and she was delivered to Julius Caesar. Yes. On her own agenda, like, Caesar did not request for Cleopatra to come to him. She's kind of like, I'm getting out of here. And so it, like, one could read that as feminist, but the way that, like, Tracy does this just seems, like, tonally dissonant to the, like, real-world implications for the character of the person doing it, in this case, Cleopatra. You know what I mean? Even when she takes over after everything's put back to normal and he abdicates and she becomes the king, I just, I don't know. I just didn't care. It didn't feel, it felt like it just like fell into her lap and it just felt like she was just doing what Tepic would have done if Tepic would have stayed. Not, not a huge fan of the characters in this. I didn't even really, like Dios was interesting, sort of. They were a couple of really interesting lines when it came to him. I really liked the description of his madness where they talked about how it's the it's the madness that comes from having your like a certain way of thinking etched on your brain from living too long. Like he's actually really sane, but the sanity has become too like grooved into his brain because he's been alive for 7000 years. Yeah, sanity is a relative concept. Oh, um Phoebe has gotten back. So she says it would be pronounced Ephivos. If it were an actual Greek place name, I explained to her that it's a, f a fake Greek one, but so I guess you can take it with the FEV or FEV. FEV? Yeah. Okay. All right. 
So we'll go FVV. That's, yeah. That's good to know. But yeah, the other thing, though, is that I couldn't tell by the end of this if Dios was the real villain or if Kumi was the real villain or if there was a real villain. Dios was, but then at the same time, by the end of the novel, I really hated Tepich. Oh, really? Why? Because he just came off as, like, a massive dickhead. <laughs> like, where he was just like, oh, yeah, I'm going, bye. And then Tracy was like, hey, can you stay and help or be the king? Or, like, you know, just even lend a hand in this peaceful transition of power. And he's like, no, fuck you. I'm going off on my horse. And all, like... Camel. Camel. You, no, he, I know he that. He leaves but on like, you bastard. He's like, I'm... He's just like, I'm leaving on my horse, goodbye, like he's some gallant, like, romantic-era hero, whereas he's in the desert on a camel, but it's, I don't know, like, at the start, he seems like he cares where he rescues Tracy, but it's like, because he does it from a somewhat noble standpoint where he's like, well, I didn't want to condemn you to death, but Dios is like, this is how it's done, boom, you're sentenced to death. And because he also does offer the option to all the other people in the prison if they want to be free, yeah, just come out of their cells. But then as the novel goes on, he be- and it's I don't think it's that he's become jaded or tired because there's no real circumstances for him to have grown weary of, you know, apart from, oh, I'm the king of a kingdom, woe is me. He just kind of, like, became a dickhead with no real in-between moment for him. You know, like... I think it's lack of development. Yeah, if this were a story, I would plot out... Like, if I were doing this, and wanted the start and the end to be the same point where... At the end, Tepich will not care about anyone. He's on his own. He's going to do his own thing. There would be, like, a whole, like, massive bit in the middle where he would be gradually ground down by society. Like, it's the trope of, like, the hero coming out of retirement, you know, like, in superhero films, or even um Mighty Eagle in the Angry Birds live-action film, <laughs> where he said, I think this is funny, he says, I'm retired now, mostly just tired. This is around the same time as he rickrolls the entire audience, which is fantastic. Uh, <laughs> but, yes. There's nothing for him. There's no real, like, we've got point A and point C, but point B does not exist. Right. I just, it's very difficult to know why Tepic does what he does in this book. It, I think he comes off as a dickhead, like you said at the end of the novel, because we don't get any re, like, it just, the only reason we're given for why he wants to leave is he's been fourth. And is it, like, there's, there is a, there is a really, interesting theme buried in here that just hasn't been teased out enough which is the idea of leaving home and then like you can't escape your home but you also can't go back home the scene where he shakes the stonemason's hand and they're like oh well we have to cut off the stonemason's hand now because he's touched a god and so tepic is trying to understand this and can't because now he's more morally aligned or culturally aligned i should say with Ankh morpork which doesn't have the same the same type of paradigm for royalty and commoners and so on. He he tells he tells Dios that he doesn't want the man's hand chopped off. And Dios says, "Your wish will certainly be done, O fountain of all wisdom, although of course the man himself may take matters into if you will excuse me his own hands." "What do you mean?" snapped Tepic. 
Sire, if his colleagues had not stopped him, he would have done it himself. With a chisel, I understand. Tepic stared at him and thought, I am a stranger in a familiar land. And I thought that that was a really interesting thing to say, a stranger in a familiar land. Like when you come home and you no longer, like you recognize it because it's where you're from, but you no longer hold the same worldview as the people who live there. I felt like that was a really interesting idea, but it didn't really ever seem to go anywhere. By the end of it, we get this, he's just going forth because he wants to go forth. And they don't really tease out whether it's because he no longer feels like it's his home or what is going on. Like, it's just very difficult to know what this char- why this character is doing what he's doing. There's also a lot of biblical references in this as well. Like, there are several references to Joseph and, like, the dreams about the cows. There's also references to some things with Moses. Like, I think about Dios's staff and the fact that it's got the snakes on it and the snakes kind of come alive, which is sort of a reference to Aaron's staff. And later, of course, it's a reference to the snake eating its own tail, the Ouroboros. So there's a lot of those, like, biblical and other mythological references in this book as well. Can I talk about the mountain goats for a brief second, Tessa? <laughs> of course. It wouldn't be a Nanny Og podcast without a Nigel talking about the mountain goats segment. Yeah, I feel like this has to become canonized as a segment, or else you will slowly grow tired of my uh, nonsense and kick me off the podcast. <laughs> no, never. So, John Darnielle, singer-songwriter of the band The Mountain Goats, wrote a sequence of songs which, like, took place over, like, multiple different albums, and it never, like, it wasn't about the same characters, like, okay, so he has this other sequence of songs which take place over, like, loads of different albums, and then the entire album of Tallahassee, from which, um, No Children, if you're on TikTok, you know that song, is about, it's this alpha, they're called the Alpha Couple, and all of the songs outside of Tallahassee that are about them have the word alpha at the start so alpha rat's nest alpha centauri whatever uh, alpha sun hat is a good one as well but these songs are called like the going to songs because they're all called going to going to Georgia is a song that John Darnielle famously will not play anymore but there's like going to Sweden going to Edinburgh going to Bristol blah 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 and he wrote them basically kind of like a jab at the people who Base their whole personality around, when I go here, things will be better. When I go here, this will fix this thing that is wrong in my life. But then, so in an episode of the podcast, I Only Listen to the Mountain Goats, he's talking with Joseph Fink about this thing, and he's like, but when you go there, you're going to get bored of it after a while, and then the only thing really that's changed is you, but you're going to start saying things like, you know, oh, this place used to be so cool when I got here. And now it's not. Now it's not cool. And there's a there's another song by the Mountain Goats, which I think really encapsulates this stranger in a familiar land. It's called so it was never released on an album. It's from an EP called Letter from Belgium, and it's called Attention All Pickpockets. I think it features Kimya Dawson in the background. So it goes, "In comes you, not the same person I knew, looking roughly the same, but something hungry, getting restless in your brain." So there I go, and not the same person that you used to know, peeking through the fisheye lens at you. And the cornet blows where the oleander grows, and us two, not the same people that our old friends knew. Because, like, you're all gonna change, and, I like, that's the way of the world. My favorite word is hiraeth, H-I-R-A-E-T-H, which is, um, nostalgia or longing for a place, to go home to a place which either never existed or you can never go back to again. 
And I think that's the concept behind it. But like you say, it's not really teased out enough. Right. And if the kingdom was changing, if Jelly Baby has now been released from this time polder that it was in, and it's, you know, rushing to back to the future and and Tracy is making all these changes and, and all of that, and people can start saying no to these these cycles that they've been trapped in, then why wouldn't he stay? Wouldn't he have the opportunity to now make it into a place that he would want to be? Like, that's the confusing part to me, is that he's treating it like it's still this place when it's not anymore, and that was the whole point of the book. Yeah, so either he wants it to change. This is, like, what I can't wrap my head around. Either he wants it to change, and then when it has the potential to change, he just decides to fuck off. Right. That's one thing. Like, I like he wants it to change, and then he just fucks off. Or, he just wants to go back to Ankh Morpork. But it doesn't really line up, because a lot of the early part is, God, I wish I were in Ankh Morpork. How do I make Jelly Baby more like Ankh Morpork? Right. You know, we get in actual feather beds, we get in plumbing, this kind of stuff. I thought that was a very funny moment, where it was just like... Oh, yes, it's been raided by bandits. You can't have your plumbing. Uh, like, the multiple times that happens. The feather bed. Yeah, I... Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't really understand this character or what he wants. And he's not, it doesn't even seem like he's going to Ogmore Park when he leaves. And then, of course, we get this scene at the end between him and Tracy, who comes out on the chariot after him, and they argue, and... Like, from the point of view of you bastard, which isn't necessarily the most reliable point of view in terms of, like, human interactions, they kiss, but it's not really certain whether it's, like, a romantic kiss or a chaste kiss. Of course, we also have found out by this point that she is his sister, which may or may not matter in Jelly Baby. And so, like, it's supposed to be this ambiguous ending, but all it left me with is, I don't care. Like, I really don't care <laughs> about whether these characters end up together or not. Like, I don't care whether he stays or goes. Like, <laughs> because I just don't feel like I know him as a person. Let's talk about the Assassin's Guild. And the way, because this is probably the most insight we will ever get into the Assassin's Guild in terms of, like, actually seeing the inner workings of it. I think there are maybe some other books that, give us short little brief looks into it. But this is probably the most drawn out version of that by Te from Tepic's perspective about his education at the guild. What did you think of the Assassin's Guild? I mean, kind of boring. Really? But I think that's a symptom of how I feel about the novel overall. Because it was kind of like, you know, like it got into like the whole, oh, what are the rules of being an assassin? You can't do this. You can't do that. You know, you need this number blade and you need to, like, use this kind of grappling hook and that kind of thing, which the minutia of that didn't really interest me. I don't know. Like, don't they bring up at one stage, though, if you, like, assassinate someone the wrong way, then you're going to end up dead, which I thought was very funny. One of the reoccurring themes about the Assassin's Guild is this idea that there has to be rules in order to be an assassin because otherwise you're just a murderer, right? You you have yes. to there has to be a certain level of coolness to it. There are certain rules you have to follow. There's a an excerpt, it's a little longer, but I think it's really good on page it's page forty five in my book. But it's a a speech that Dr. Crucis, the head tutor, gives to the the young students, because they're all boys at this point. This is a flashback. And he says, We do not murder, he said. It was a soft voice. The doctor never raised his voice. 
but he had a way of giving it the pitch and spin that could make it heard through a hurricane. We do not execute. We do not massacre. We never, you may be very certain, we never torture. We have no truck with crimes of passion or hatred or pointless gain. We do not do it for a delight in inhumation or to feed some secret inner need or for petty advantage or for some cause or belief. I tell you, gentlemen, that all these reasons are in the highest degree suspect. Look into the face of a man who will kill you for a belief and your nostrils will snuff up the scent of abomination. Hear a speech declaring a holy war, and I assure you, your ears shall catch the clink of evil scales and the dragging of its monstrous tail over the purity of language. No, we do it for the money. And because we, above all, must know the value of a human life, we, can, we do it for a great deal of money. There can be few cleaner motives so shorn of all pretense. Nil morfiti sin lucra. Remember, no killing without payment. He paused for a moment. And always give a receipt, he said. They are very clear that they do it for payment. It's nothing personal. It's not about beliefs. It's not about being a serial killer and enjoying it, right? It's about being paid. Yeah, although when I read that paragraph, all I could think about was Chef Skinner from Ratatouille, <laughs> where he's talking about where he's talking about Linguini, where he's he's like pointing out how ridiculous this seems, and he's like, "That is highly suspect." <laughs> um, I really liked uh, Mariset, the instructor that gives Tepic the the test. The way that he's like constantly making it harder for Tepic by like causing like the roof to be uh, insecure and like setting traps for him that he has to get through. I thought that was really that was really cool. And I don't know, like I didn't I've never been to a boarding school, so I imagine there are probably more humorous things in here for somebody who has been to a boarding school. I went to a boarding school, but I didn't board there. I really enjoyed the the scene where the the like the first night where the young the young boys like they're trying to sacrifice the one who brings in the goat to try to sacrifice it to to their god. That was really funny. But I, I also really love the reference to the young men's reformed cultist of the Ikor god Belshamarath, which is a reference, of course, to Belshamarath, the the eight the eight Cthulhu god from the color of magic. I just think it's funny that he's like this eldritch god in the color of magic. And here he's like the YMCA. <laughs> like, like this is like a gym. Yeah, again, like maybe maybe I would have been funnier if I'd been to boarding school, but I, I appreciated the the look into the Assassin's Guild, the gates that are always open because death never closes, except for actually they just don't have money to repair the gates that got stuck open. Like that that was all pretty funny to me. Yeah, I was about to say, a moment like that is like quintessential Pratchett. Where it's like, I've based this around a phrase, and then I've like made it. I, I, I've made this phrase and been like, I've put made a literal interpretation of this phrase, but then also there's some like bureaucracy reason why it's like this also. What did you think of the philosophers in Ephevi? I mean, I thought they were kind of annoying, but it's like, okay, so I really liked, oh, what's his name? The guy who's just paid to listen. Endos, the listener. 
yes, Endos the Listener, where it's so funny. It's so funny because, first of all, he, he I think he forms a really interesting counterpart to the Royal Recognizer from Mort. Oh, yeah, I didn't even think about that. Where it's like the Royal Recognizer's whole job is to make sure that you are aware of a person, whereas Endos the Listener is aware of everyone but like basically is paid to be unnoticed and just listen and also just i love the moment where at the end of it he just hands tepich the bill and be like there you go (laughs) and his whole thing is just going like "Mm, yep uh uh-huh right i do appreciate that all of these philosophers are like real references to greek either philosophers or artists So Zeno, spelled with an X, is obviously a reference to Zeno of Zeno's paradox, right? And we see him trying to reenact the paradox by shooting at tortoises. We get Copolymer, the greatest storyteller in the world, who I'm pretty sure it's a reference to Homer, which I thought was hilarious. His retelling of the Iliad, basically, that's just like the most ridiculous like, run-on, vague story, and they're all like, oh, it's so precise, his attention to detail. Like, he's like, so you see, what happened was he'd taken her back home and her father. This wasn't the old king. This was the one before, the one with the was name. He married some girl from, from over El Haribwe. She was a squint. What was her name? It began with a P or an L or one of them letters. And he just goes on like that for, like, a whole page. And it's like a retelling of the Iliad, but you have to, like, really know the Iliad to understand anything about what he's talking about. So that that was very funny. Herodotus might also be a referent point because he's like the father of history. Pythagonal, who's the the philosopher of geometry, is obviously Pythagoras, which his whole thing about pi, his rant about how pissed off he is that it's not a, like a neat number. It just tells me that someone used the wrong circles. That was funny. Yeah. Aesop is clearly Aesop, the the teller of fables. Antiphon is Aristophanes. And then Ibid, who's supposed to, like, it's supposed to be an Ovid type. But Ibid is obviously, like, also the thing that you use in Chicago-style citation, which means the same author as before. So there's there's a quip later in the book where Ibid, you already know, right? The same person as before. So there's there's kind of those jokes in there. I got the philosopher jokes. I got all of that as I was reading. I don't completely get math jokes, though, and I feel like there's a lot of math jokes in this that I just that just went right over my head. Don't look at me. <laughs> so, again, listeners, if you're thinking we're going to explain the math jokes to you, I'm very sorry. I did appreciate, though, because, again, I was a little worried that they were going to set up a Phoebe as, like, this modern place that was just so well-developed, you know, versus Jelly Baby, which is, like, this backwards, like, country. But they seem to be just about as critical, Pratchett, I should say, seems to be just about as critical of a Phoebe as he is Jelly Baby, just in a different way. Yeah, it's when Tepic is trying to explain it to Tracy. To be honest, I'm not sure, he said, but I don't think so. They've got something they do with it. I think it's called a mockery, and it means that everyone in the whole country can say who the new tyrant is. One man, one... He paused. The political history lesson seemed a very long while ago and had introduced concepts never heard in Jelly Baby or in Ankh Morpork, for that matter. He had a stab at it anyway. One man, one vet. That's for the electing, then? He shrugged. It might be, for all he know. 
The point is, though, that everyone can do it. They're very proud of it. Everyone has, he hesitated again, certain that now that things were amiss. The vet. Except for women, of course, and children, and criminals, and slaves, and stupid people, and people of foreign extraction, and people disapproved of for, uh, various reasons, and lots of other people, but everyone apart from them. It's a very enlightened civilization. I mean, like, it definitely brings to mind, like, the women's suffrage movement in the 1910s in England, but also, like, more specifically, we accept we accept these truths to be self-evident that um, God the Creator has endowed humankind with certain unalienable rights, the rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, but, you know, obviously not black people, you right. know, they need to wait, they need to wait, like, nearly a hundred years for 13th Amendment to be past for them to actually get any kind of rights but america is this you know great bastion of freedom where everyone is equal where unless you know everyone is equal well unless you fit the paradigm of privilege well and also i think people they people a lot of times like to say like oh athens the birthplace of democracy what they had was not what we would consider modern democracy it was definitely more of an oligarchy where the people who got to vote were men who owned land like yeah. it wasn't even poor people you know like even if we took out like women and slaves and people of foreign extraction it wasn't even like poor people who were allowed it was just like a bunch of rich men and yeah sure they all got a vote but we all know how that goes yeah and i mean like as well when you consider sparta like sparta was sparta is considered like the more brutish cousin sorry brutish not any <laughs> other word which sounds like brutish cousin to Athens where it's like oh yeah they were just at war all the time whereas in Athens they were reclining on stone benches and eating grapes and talking all these big ideas but it's like you know to a certain extent there was gender equality in Sparta where there wasn't in Athens and I'm not gonna like make the claim that Sparta was you know a more enlightened place or even like a good place to live because nowhere was back then but they definitely had more rights in certain areas than Athens did, whereas Athens is held up to be this pinnacle of civilization. See, this would be my one defense of Terry Pratchett against or the like sort of leanings towards Orientalism that happened in this book. And this isn't me actually saying, oh, he's actually not saying this, because I do think that there is some lazy writing and some re reliance on stereotypes that are very problematic in this book. But my one defense would be that usually when people do that, when they talk about Greece, because Greece is supposed to be like this birthplace of Western civilization, which again is a very problematic idea to have, that they generally are like, oh, well, yeah, because like great Greece is where like rationality was born, right? And it was so much better than all these other places. And I think in pyramids, the point is it's not better than all these other places. They just have different problems. I, there is, and we haven't read Small Gods yet, but there is a short reference to Small Gods on, it's page 224 in my book, where it's with the, the tortoises, which I have to say, this the scene with the tortoises really made me laugh. Like, the whole, like, Zeno's paradox and them try, <laughs> actually trying to, like, demonstrate how it would work and them arguing about it. I thought that was great. But there's a scene where Tracy is sitting on the grass and she's feeding a tortoise. Tepic has been thinking about Aphivian gods and the way that they would turn into animals to, like, gain the favor of some Aphivian mm. woman. And, you know, this is in reference to all those Greek myths where a god would, like, 
like like Zeus and the swan and, you know, all that stuff. He gave it, the tortoise, a suspicious look in case it was a god trying it on. It did not look like a god. If it was a god, it was putting on an incredibly good act. And, of course, in Small Gods, for those of you who have read Small Gods, you know that one of the main plot points of Small Gods is that a god is mysteriously transformed into a tortoise. So that's like a, a small like preview, I guess. It's like he wrote that as a joke and then was like, oh, actually, I should write a novel based on that. Small little like throwaway. Do you know where else a character gets accidentally turned into a turtle? Where? Jojo's Bizarre Adventures. There you go. There you go. I haven't I have not actually read or watched that. I need to. Part six has just come out on Netflix the day we record this. Wow. The first twelve episodes anyway, so now is a good time to get into JoJo's. So the other math thing that I didn't necessarily get is of course the greatest mathematician on the disc is a camel called You Bastard, who is a main part of this as well. Thoughts about camels and maths and you bastard in particular? I thought I thought the reveal that it was a camel and not a person was really good, but then after that I grew increasingly frustrated every time we had a section narrated in his POV, which is the constant like, oh yeah, we're calculating this you know, we're calculating this this way and you gotta do this, and it's like Maybe it's because I don't like maths and I don't like having to think in numbers, but also for the fact that it's like, it's a really annoying POV to read, where you're trying to like parse what's happening through this like nonsense, like pseudo gibberish. Right. And maybe it would be funnier if you were like a mathematician, but I'm not sure it would be. Yeah, I don't know. Mathematicians, are there any mathematicians listening to us? Please tell us, is this funnier if you have a degree in maths? I would like to know. I don't think so. I, I, like, I have a concrete reason. It's not just more Nigel hates maths. I, like, it's written with the intent of sounding intelligent. And I think that any writing which is written with the sole purpose of sounding intelligent or making you think that the author or person thinking it is intelligent is shit writing. Sorry to be so bald about it, but I like I think it's one of the worst forms of writing. He's writing it to sound intelligent because he wants to contrast it with like the like it's highbrow versus lowbrow, right? Because it's like, he wants the math part to sound intelligent because of it's supposed to contrast with, like, the stupidity of, like, him s using math to spit at someone. Or, you know, like, it's supposed to be like that, but I'm not sure it really comes off the way... And it, it happens too much, like you said. Like, it's a joke that was kind of funny the first couple of times, but then, like, after the fifth time, I'm like, okay, I get it, like... He's smart, but I did enjoy the dunk on dolphins when they when they were talking about that camels are actually really great at math and how they figured out that you should just like pretend to be dumb around humans because humans will like be awful to you if they figure out that you're smart. But the dunk on dolphins that the fact is that camels are far more intelligent than dolphins. There's a footnote. Never trust a species that grins all the time. It's up to something. 
I feel like maybe Terry Pratchett had something personal against dolphins. This this seems very in contrast with Douglas Adams, who writes about how dolphins are actually the smartest species on Earth, and that's why they leave before the Earth is destroyed. I think it's a really interesting thing about humans, and by interesting, I mean kind of awful. I love how every single podcast I do or conversation I have, I say, oh, this is an interesting thing. And by interesting, I mean, and then something the complete opposite. It's a weird turn of phrase I have <laughs> developed. So you see this in Lovecraft a lot, where Lovecraft dehumanizes things by, like, not giving them eyes, or giving them too many eyes, or eyes that are in the wrong position, or orientation. Something like, like, this is not a new thing, but, like, it's Lovecraft's big thing. Because, like, as humans, if something has eyes... Or something which is recognizable as, like, eyes within a face, we can empathize with it. But it's also really weird because, like, dolphins are somewhat sapient creatures. I mean, I have never spoken to a dolphin. I'm not in the mind of a dolphin, so I can't really speak to the level of sentience that they have or awareness. But they're definitely, like, intelligent creatures. But as humans, it's really weird because it's like we encounter something which has a similar level of intelligence to us, which is not human, and we're instantly, like, throw our guards up. And I get, to tie this back into the episode, that's what gel is like, or that's what the Jelly Baby is like, where instead of confronting, like, how the new world is actually different, they're just like, no, we're just gonna stay in our insular little bubble, thanks. Yeah, and it's it's so strange. I did like, also, the cats, because obviously ancient Egypt has a lot of association with cats, especially sphinx cats, and how, like, they're treated as gods or whatever. And I like that the cats here are just, like, grumpy assholes. Like, they have more in common with Grebo than they do with, like, the stateliness that we usually associate with. Question, Tessa. You know that thing which is near the Great Pyramids of Egypt, right? The thing it's... The sphinx? Yeah, what animal is that? It's a sphinx. It's nope. part... What is it? Part lion? Part... Nope. We don't know. Because that's not what a sphinx is. A, a sphinx has a very clear set of characteristics as to what... It, this is just like... I'm not trying to like one-up you. This is just a weird thing I learned on QI. Where this is not what a sphinx is. But we all refer to it as the sphinx. But we have no idea what it is oh the actual statue that's what you're talking yeah, about. yeah the thing yeah. we call the great sphinx is not a sphinx right it does not actually look like the way we would describe a sphinx. yeah and also because a sphinx is a greek thing right so it would make sense to be in like in disc world obviously like it would make sense if it were an effivian construct but like the whole concept of a sphinx I don't know whether it would have been in Egypt, because the Sphinx definitely appears in, like, you know, Oedipus Rex, which is a play by Sophocles. Which we get a riff on here, because Tepic actually meets the Sphinx, the Sphinx asks him the same riddle that that Oedipus is asked by the Sphinx, and sort of argues his way out of it, which I thought was funny. I enjoyed that scene, but then it also kind of, like, looped around where the Sphinx... It seemed as if the Sphinx forgot what was happening. After a certain while. I don't think he was used to his prey, her prey, its prey, arguing back. Yeah, no, but like even after, like after they had settled on the definition, 
then, like, or at least how I read it, it seems as if the Sphinx was treating Tepich as if he were a new person entirely. Like, as in, like, there had been a hard reset. I, it would kind of depend on how old the Sphinx is in Egypt, because in, because, so with Alexander the Great, he invaded Egypt and conquered it and brought, like, obviously he conquered a lot of places and brought Greek culture to a lot of places. And it had an ever a, a big impact on Egypt specifically because once Alexander died and his generals divided up his empire, Ptolemy is the one who took over Egypt. And so the pharaohs after Ptolemy are actually ethnically Greek. Like Cleopatra probably was more Greek than she was Egyptian at that point. And so it makes sense to me that there would be like this Greek influence on Egypt. But I think the the actual statue of the Sphinx that you're talking about might is probably older than that. So yeah, that is a great question. Maybe the Greeks just saw it and called it a Sphinx. It probably wasn't originally conceived of a Sphinx. The archaeological evidence suggests that it was created by ancient Egyptians of the Old Kingdom during the reign of Khafre, uh, circa 2558 to 2532 BC. It's been a long time since I've studied this history like i'm reaching back into my into like my early college years for all this information although do you want to know what is older than the pyramids new grange in ireland yeah most of the old traditional like pagan structures which we still which are still like extant in ireland so a lot of the barrow tombs and things like new grange nowth and douth in county meath are older than the Great Pyramids at Giza by around a thousand years at least. I did not know that. Yeah, this is a thing. This is a thing. Because it it also, like, ties back into this whole conversation where it's, like, the concept of Egypt being kind of a backwards place and the concept of of Greece being this, like, sophisticated place. But by the time that those were happening, sites in Ireland were already old. I mean, it is... is the height of othering somebody else when you're like, oh, they're an ancient civilization and they've never changed versus us. And it's like, no, you know that you come from people who are that old too, right? <laughs> like, like we all come from like yeah. civilizations that are older. Yeah, it's the height of Western exceptionalism. Right. Like we're somehow way more progressive or newer or whatever than like somewhere else. Let me ask you this. What did you think of the pyramid builders? Especially, and I I have to admit, it took me way too long to get this joke. Is it the name joke? Yeah. To clasp and his sons 2A and 2B. I thought was so... I think that's probably my favorite joke in the entire book. Mm -hmm. Because it's like, it made me think like, huh, what actually would happen in a situation like this? Because obviously, I think you would call the older sibling... Whichever one, like, came out of the womb first, you would call that one whatever your name is. Like, Billy Boggs Jr. or Billy Boggs II or whatever. (laughs) And then you would call the other one a different name, like Steve or something. But, like, what if you did call them that? What would be the prerogative? I don't know. So I, I liked the family business of the pyramids and just sort of how they, like, build pyramids and... They send the king's bills and the bill the kings never pay the bills. All that was really interesting. 
what did you think about because when they're building this great pyramid it obviously fucks with time in a way it, it kind of introduces this i this joke that terry pratchett will use in other books where it's like it's probably quantum like to explain something that isn't really easy to explain oh it's probably quantum and i think that that's that's pretty funny but what did you think about the idea of them looping so they could have more workers i mean i thought it was interesting but it's also like that's exactly what capitalism would do capitalism breeds innovation and so therefore if you because that like then the whole conceit is well how are we paying all these amounts of workers well we're giving them money which we've copied through time but which will then disappear and so we've the same amount of money and it's like wow that's exactly what like i imagine amazon is going to be doing in like 10 years time yeah they call them doppelgangs yeah i wonder what that's a reference to <laughs> but like it's like this weird like obviously it's a reference to doppelganger but it's also like a weird capitalistic version of it like doppelgangs yeah we made copies of people so we would have 40,000 workers instead of 2,000 workers mm. I did like that they emphasize the fact that the pyramids are based on what is essentially slave labor like because people forget that they think oh this is beautiful and they don't realize it's like going to like downtown Savannah in the United States or, or Charleston where it's like yeah this is really beautiful but you do know that slaves made this right like that this was made with the labor of slaves yeah so i i liked that this even though they were getting paid so they're not technically slaves in jelly baby although there are slaves in jelly baby it still emphasizes that this is being made by people who don't really have a choice but to make these things it definitely brings to mind like amazon warehouse conditions where it's like yes you're being paid technically but it's also like this is objectively, or like objectively, the worst place to work. At, at one point, they, which I thought this was really funny, they find out that some of the workers have been looping themselves so they can stay home and send some of their doubles to go work for them. And they're like, but they're making themselves work. And it's like, well, yeah, but when has somebody ever like stopped drinking so that way the person that they are at 40 doesn't have liver problems? Like, I, I thought that, that was a very insightful glimpse into human nature as well, if a, if a depressing one. The idea that the person that you are 30 years from now is essentially a stranger to you that you can do anything to. Yeah, exactly. Like, past you is an idiot, and future you is kind of like an obstacle, where it's like, well, fuck that guy. Yeah, like, why, why do I care about the person you know, 10 years from now, I care about myself. It, it just, it does emphasize the idea that you are not the same person as you travel through time, which we are told is a very important dimension here. Mm. I liked that we got to see the, the whole like billions of universes, that everything you can imagine exists somewhere. The idea that belief brings things into existence. If you believe in something, it must exist, although it might not exist in this dimension, it exists somewhere. That is something that'll be important later on as we go. Right, so we also get another, like, you know, we talked about this before, where the narrator obviously sort of stands outside all of these dimensions and is able to look into them, because obviously the narrator knows about the dimensions with the Sphinx, knows about these other dimensions, knows about Earth, right? We talked about this before, how the narrator will make Earth references that the characters cannot possibly understand. There's an example of that when... 
They're talking about the politicians who come visit Tepic and how they're trying to emulate what they think Jelly Baby culture is, but they're getting it completely wrong. And there's a footnote that says, some translation is needed here. If a foreign ambassador to the court of St. James wore, out of a genuine desire to flatter, a bowler hat, a claymore, a Civil War breastplate, Saxon trousers, and a Jacobean haircut, he'd create pretty much the same impression. Obviously, the disc world doesn't know any of those references. Like, nobody in Jelly Baby is going to understand any of that. But he, the narrator is able to say that because he's not only aware of the disc world and Earth and perhaps their differences, he's also aware that someone is reading this book and might need a translation. So it almost gets a little meta there. It's not quite Deadpool looking into the camera, but it's like adjacent to that. Yeah, where like this is written with an audience in mind. It's weird when it happens in fantasy because you like it's the only one where you can get away with that because if you do that in like a historical fiction novel, your immersion is broken. Yes. Because there's no way if you're writing about like Oliver Quam Cromwell, uh, Oliver Cromwell, <laughs> that if you start talking about like Bitcoin, Oliver Cromwell doesn't know what Bitcoin right. is. I wish I didn't know what Bitcoin <laughs> is. Sorry, I just <laughs> want to take away from this episode. I didn't. I didn't think I would be saying that sentence. That's gonna be the. That's gonna be the tagline of the episode on Twitter. Nigel wishes she didn't know what Bitcoin was. <laughs> Fantasy is the only one where you can get away with it because it's like, yeah, this is weird, but also the story you're telling is weird. You know, even right. in like, okay, so maybe like grimdark fantasy, it would be more out of place than in something as absurd as the Discworld. But still, it's an odd thing, and that footnote to me seemed a lot more meta than usual. But that, so I just wanted to bring that up. A couple of other things before we, we start to wrap up the episode. The thing that really did strike me as being a plus to this book, something that I really enjoyed, although I wish that it had been supported against a better plot and cast of characters, I really enjoyed the imagery of this book. Especially once we get into like the, I, I liked the idea of the pyramids like flaring at night. I thought that was really interesting. I also really liked once we got into like the pocket dimension that the that Jelly Baby is sort of forced into by the the big pyramid. I liked the imagery of like the different gods that were like fighting each other and the ways in which they were portrayed and I also really enjoyed like the way that the pyramids themselves sort of talked about in sort of the bending of space and time that happens in this pocket dimension, I thought that was really beautiful and really well done. Like I was actually having these images in my mind that were different than anything I had ever really encountered in a fantasy novel before. I just didn't feel like they were as well supported as they could have been. I think the image which sticks at me the most, if it's not the pyramids flaring at, at night, because like in my head, I'm imagining darkness but also like enough that you can see and then like a pure white beam would come up from the top of a pyramid kind of like a sky beam yes there is a legit sky beam so if you if you adapted pyramids now you'd be accused of like borrowing from although it's not really a thing now so you'd be accused of like reviving the sky beam trend from the early 2010s i think the image that sticks with me the most is the ancestors 
forming a chain so Tepich can get up the side of the pyramid where it's like each successive generation or like well, each generation holds the next generation on their shoulders or like this is a real visualization of how legacy and history works in that like you know you're supported and then it says like yes in the action of the story Tepich is at the top but then it, the narrative says the Tepich feels like he were at the bottom of a pyramid, which is pointing down the same, like the same dimensions, but it's pointing the opposite way. Like, uh, Le Pyramide Inverse at the Louvre. It's this nice, it's, it's this nice dual view of history where it's like, I have gotten here because of my ancestors and what they've done for me, or I'm here because like all of these people were before me and I'm just like this drop at the end of it, you know, where it's like, they're kind of the same thing, but you can read it as one is like, I am directly benefiting from the actions of my predecessors. And the other one is like, well, I'm here and the action of gravity. (laughs) And I also really appreciated like, like when you meet your ancestors, especially ones in a culture that's being described here where they're so like revered and made into legend and they're just like regular people. And I thought that was really cool, especially when he has the dream about Kuft, the the first <laughs> the first king of Jelly Baby who was like and he's like actually I was just like a con man with a bunch of camels. <laughs> like I thought that that was because, like, that's the thing is that people have all these, like, storied legends about how dynasties get started. And usually it's just somebody who, like, cheated their way into being an aristocrat. <laughs> yeah, I the, the pyramid imagery is really interesting. I also just really liked the image of, like, the pure black marble of, a pure, of like, the giant pyramid. Just, like, the dark marble. And, it, like, it's messing with time and space and distorting things around it. And so at one point it's, like, covered in frost. Like, all of these, like, very interesting images exist around this pyramid. The goddess of the night and how, like, the sky, when they get into this other dimension, is, like, her body. Like, all of that I found to be really fascinating and really well done. I just, I wish it wasn't, (laughs) I wish it wasn't in this book. I wish this book had been more interesting, I guess is what I'm trying to say, to, to support this level of imagery. Yeah, because I think it's a really interesting conceit where, oh, I had, literally, I had this page marked and then I put my, I put my fucking book down, but it's basically to the effect of where it's like, they didn't always believe the same thing in Jelly Baby, but their belief was, you know, like, it was strong and it lasted for 7,000 years. So, like, these gods are all really potent, but it's every possible interpretation of the gods, you know? Yeah, and they even, they're when they're fighting, because they're all fighting over their tasks, because there's too many of them, and one of the priests starts, like, doing, like, a sports announcer's voice <laughs> about, like, them wrestling yeah. over the sun. Yeah, it, it's just, yeah, I think this book was just kind of, it had some interesting ideas, but the execution overall was not. Not my favorite, anyway. Doesn't sound like it was yours either. No. Although I want to bring up what what is the deal with Hat the Vulture God? <laughs> they keep bringing him up throughout the entire thing, where Taklus is always like, "Oh, I want this statue," and they're like, "No, get rid of it." 
what is the point? They keep coming back to it, and from what I can see, there's no real payoff to it, other than when Hat is actually there, he enjoys the statue? Well, I think it's because, like, the statue was messed up. Like, he got, like, a discount, and so he kept trying to, like, unload it on different clients, and the clients were just like, no, we don't want this. I think that's supposed to be the joke, but it's not very well executed. What did you, so I only asked this because I know Osmandius has come up on this podcast before. What did you think about the Osmandius reference? The birds said more with a simple bowel movement than Osmandius ever managed to say. I think it's an interesting one in reference to the poem, because that's kind of the crux of the poem, where, you know, look upon my works, ye mighty in despair, but all around the wreck, are you like, all around the, the remains of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away, where, you know, there is nothing left of this supposedly great work. But then also, like, it's interesting thematically, because the whole point of Ozymandias is, here's a reminder of something which used to be great, which is no longer, and the plot of Pyramids is like, well, what if that thing was never great to begin with? What if you go to this familiar place and it's not what you thought it would be and you are not the person you thought you would be when you're there. Right, yeah, I think that that's a really interesting connection between the two. And also, Ozymandias is a Greek word or name for Ramses II, so there's even more of like a Egyptian-Greek connection there. Who knew Who knew we were going to have to like pull out all of our knowledge of like Egyptian-Greek historical relations in this podcast? Some of this probably sounds intellectual. <laughs> <laughs> Some of it's just us being like, why is this here? Nanny, Nanny Ogg's Book Club, a pseudo-scientific podcast. <laughs> or pseudo-intellectual. I just wanted to say, I guess the Dios twist straight away. The minute they asked him, hey, Dios, how old are you? I was like, oh, he's immortal or he's been around for thousands of years. And then like later on in the book where they're like, oh, there was always someone like Dios at the side of the the kings. I'm like, oh, yeah. But it's like it's like when you read Dracula and you see it where it's like, you know, where Dracula says to Jonathan, oh, I don't drink wine. That is, <laughs> you know, and Jonathan question or like unquestioningly accepts it. And it's just like, no, he's a vampire, you fucking moron. I don't know how you're not seeing this. It's so obvious. Yeah. Uh, what? I guess I was going to ask you that last thing. What did you think of the other twist where it turns out that once the pyramid uh, slowly explodes, which is my other favorite image, I think, in this book, is like the idea of the pyramid like exploding, but it's like a slow explosion. He is pushed back in time to the beginning of Jelly Baby and actually meets Kuft. So the idea is, is that he starts the whole cycle over again. I think it would I think it's an interesting concept. But again, it's not really like it doesn't make sense because yeah, it happens, but so the the ending of the book is given over to Dios happening. And yeah, it's interesting and like that's how because it's kind of given it's kind of like intimated that this has happened before. Because, like, it says, like, Dios doesn't know how many times his mind has been around this circuit, basically, you know? So he could be many, 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 many times older than 7,000, and just, like, that crushing level of monotony has broken his brain, you know, to an even larger degree than we had thought. But it's weird that the end of the novel is given over to this, because the whole thing, up until this point, 
is that, well, Jelly Baby is a new country now, and it's different, and it has escaped the trapped time which the pyramids hold. But then giving over the novel to the end, like the end of the novel to this cyclical nature thing makes it feel like it's not because like, it's a very Stephen King thing to do. So have you read The Stand? I have not, but I've read a lot of other Stephen King and I actually am going to also compare it to another horror property. So go ahead. Tell me how it's like The Stand. So The Stand is this massive battle between good and evil, which is not the comparison, but the, the, like the big bad of a lot of Stephen King's books is the man in black, Randall Flagg, or some variation of him. You know, he's in Eyes of the Dragon, he's in the Dark Tower, he's in The Stand as kind of just like this apocalyptic evil figure, you know, because this was written way, way before any of the kind of Dark Tower mythology was put around Randall Flagg. But he's this like ultimate big bad who's basically like the devil um, analog. Uh, and he gets killed. But then the end of the novel is given over to him being reborn again on an island with, like, you know, this indigenous tribe, and he starts to, like, win them over to his side. But the whole point of the stand is that it's going to take place again. Well, it's kind of the whole point of the Dark Tower series as well. Which I haven't read, but I understand that, like, I understand the end of the thing is, like, he has to do it again, but he has a horn or something, which means it may be different, but, like, a lot of Stephen King is cyclical. You know, like, in It, it comes back every 27 years, uh, up until he's stopped. Or It has stopped again. She? I don't like the reveal that It is feminine, because it feels very weird and tacked on. I think it's more just that it can lay eggs. Like, it's a, it is a creature that exists out, or that did exist outside our universe, but it can also reproduce. I think that's more of what it's trying to say rather than any gender type of thing. Of course, we would gender it because we have such a like, we being humans, I guess, have such a like weird concept of gender and reproduction. For me, this is a terrible movie, but it made me think, because yeah, the, the ending of this novel has almost a horror like twist to it because it does end with the villain it does end with him like waking up and like doing it over again but it also reminded me of the film mother which was directed by darren aronofsky it's a terrible film not going to recommend that you watch it even if you are a horror film person but it does have also this quality of like oh yeah we're starting over again like this is a horrible thing and we have to kind of like redo this cycle so there, there is, I, I agree with you. The other books so far have not ended this way. They have ended almost like either on a hopeful note or at least a like, this is just what life is sort of note. This one is almost like, and it starts over again. <laughs> I don't know. I wish Dios was scarier. I feel like I would have been sold on this ending a little bit more if he was a more horrifying villain. Yeah. There are two death sightings in Pyramids. The first one is when the first king, Tepic's father, dies after throwing himself off of like the palace because he thinks he's a bird and tries to fly. Death comes for him to collect him and basically is just like, well, you're dead now and uh, you're going to stay here because this is what jelly baby people do. Like, what, what happens to you is up to you, right? And so that sort of begins... Can I just say, it's an interesting parallel to Felmet in Weird Sisters. Where he has to stay on, but 
because it's like it's unfinished business and he can't leave the grounds. Whereas the unfinished business for Tepechaimon is cultural beliefs. The culture is not finished with him. Right, like the none of the none of the kings or queens can leave because of the belief system that they continue on after death in the pyramids. In fact, it's also horrifying to him because he doesn't want to be put into a pyramid. He wants to move on. He wants his body put into the ocean so he can like dissolve into nothing. So there's also kind of that horrific element to it as well. The second death sighting we get at the very end of the book, when all of the all of the mummies who have, have been reanimated and then they help Tepic to put everything right, they all finally do pass on. And we get this very short moment with death. And we can only tell it's death because of the small caps where he says, this is most irregular. We're sorry. It's not our fault. How many are, of you are there? More than 1,300, I'm afraid. Very well, then. Please form an orderly queue. Like, it's it's a very, like, funny, like, okay, now he has to, like, because none of them moved on right away, he has to deal with them all at once. So there's kind of like that irritation there. The first footnote is on page five in my copy. It is when they're talking about one of one or more of the beliefs about the sun rising. And the sun toiled across the sky. Many people have wondered why. Some people think a giant dung beetle pushes it. As explanations go, it lacks a certain technical edge but and has the added drawback that, as certain circumstances may re- reveal, it is possibly correct. It reached sundown without anything particularly unpleasant happening to it. Footnote. Such as being buried in the sand and having eggs laid in it. What did you think the best footnote was in this book? I'm kind of drawn to... This one, from, it's on page 70 of my book. One of the two legends about the founding of Ankh-Morpork Pork relates that two orphan brothers who built the city were in fact found and suckled by a hippopotamus, literally Orijapal, although some historians hold that this is a min- mistranslation of Orijapal, a type of glass fronted drinks cabinet. Eight heraldic hippos line the bridge facing out to sea. It is said that if danger ever threatens the city, they will run away. The other legend, not normally recounted by citizens, this is a double footnote by the way, is that at an earlier even earlier time, a group of wise men survived a flood sent by the gods by building a huge boat, and on this boat they took two of every type of animal then existing on the disc. After some weeks, the combined manure was beginning to weigh the boat low in the water, so, the story runs, they tipped it over the side and called it Ankh-Morpork. I think this is interesting because it's like, you've got the two brothers, which is obviously Romulus, the myth of Romulus and Remus from Roman mythology, and then you have, like, the heraldic hippos are a reference to the Ravens at the Tower of London, where if they ever flee the Tower of London, England is sure to fall. And then obviously the the giant boat is a reference to Noah's Ark. There's a lot of references packed in a small space there. Yeah. My favorite footnote, it's on page 116 of my book, is when uh, Pataklasp is... Ta- like, it's when they, when they figure out the time looping thing. And they said... Patepklus hesitated. This all seemed very familiar. He'd had this feeling before. An overwhelming sensation of reja vu. Footnote. Literally, I am going to be here again. I don't know why that just tickled me, the idea of reja vu. Like, the fe- it's not just the feeling I've been here before, but I will be here again. Because I feel like that's an actual real feeling. I know that people don't talk about reja vu, that Terry Pratchett made this up. 
But I have definitely had like feelings before like, oh, the phone is going to ring and then the phone rings. Like, you know, like stuff like that. It's very central as well, because as well, you have wine where the grapes are pressed backwards. So you get the hangover before you drink the wine. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that because it took me so long to read this book. That's a joke near the beginning. Which I don't remember the name of that wine, but it, it like the whole thing, you get like these hints that time is kind of ticking over and the things from the past or the things from the future just reheated. Okay, so this is actually the part of the book where they meet the Ephiven philosophers with Zeno and Ibid, and where they're doing the Zeno's paradox experiment. And there's a scene where he's tr- they're trying to explain to him Zeno's paradox. And <laughs> the Ibid, Ibid says, take no notice of him, boy. He said he's just covering for himself because of the accident last week. The tortoise did beat the hare, Zeno said sulkily. The hare was dead, Zeno, said the tall man patiently, because you shot it. I was aiming at the tortoise, you know, trying to combine two experiments, cut down on expensive research time, make full use of available, Zeno gestured with the bow, which now had another arrow on it. I I appreciated that because it's a combination of Zeno's paradox and the fable of the tortoise and the hare at the same Mm. time. And again, it's a lot of references going on in a very short time period. There's also a great footnote within another footnote, which I won't read all of, but it's basically about the fastest animal in the disc, which is the Punzuma, the ambiguous Punzuma, which they only can see once it's dead because it's so fast. And the fastest insect is the .303 bookworm, which is the the bookworm that can eat through books in magical libraries. What is the thing that made you think? I don't know. Like... Because there's nothing specifically that made me think. It's kind of like the overall concept of trapped time in Jelly Baby and how that works and how it relates to, like, the real-life legacy of traditions and things like the royal family, you know? Or I suppose even maybe, like, the President of the United States to a certain extent. Because I think American exceptionalism and ultranationalism does suffer an awful lot from this where it's like well this is what we did in the past and we were great in the past so therefore we must do this and be like this in the present so yeah i think an awful lot of what makes me think in discworld books is stuff that i can like readily associate with things which are happening in the real world right now yeah and there's surprisingly a lot of them for books that were written in the 80s at least the books we've been reading so far were written in the 80s the one that i think of there's it's when they realize, when the people in Jelly Baby realize that they're stuck in this, like, pocket dimension, the time holder, and the king thinks, I'm shut in my body, thought the king. Everything we believe is true, and what we believe isn't what we think we believe. I mean, we think we believe the gods are wise and just and powerful, but what we really believe is that they are like our father after a long day. And we think we believe the netherworld is some sort of paradise, but what we really believe is that it's right here, and you go into it in your body, and I'm in it, and I'm never going to get away. Never, ever. And I I liked that because I liked the distinction between what you believe and what you really believe, like what you think you believe and what you really believe, because I think that as humans, we have a special capability for cognitive dissonance, and sometimes, Mm. sometimes that can be a good thing, right? It, when you try to learn how to navigate between two different sets of beliefs and you kind of come towards a synthesis, right? That's how we learn new things, right? We're presented with a new concept. We have to like absorb it into what we already know. 
But I think we also, it can also be bad, right? The way that we sort of compartmentalize and justify things that we would not normally, that we say that we don't believe in, but that we actually kind of do believe in. So in this case, I just like the idea of, oh, well, we like to think that the gods are just and wise, but actually, if they really were the way that we talk about them, they would be, you know, kind of petty and kind of cruel and kind of stupid, right? Which is what we see from the gods here in Jelly Baby. All right, so next episode, we are going to return to Granny Weatherwax with the very first witch's novel, 1987's Equal Rights. Where can people find you online and on their headphones, Nigel? So you can find me on Twitter, at SpicyNigel, where what have I tweeted about recently? The Toy Show? I had a good success uh, on tweets about The Toy Show. I've tweeted about my Spotify wrapped, my hot chocolate reviews, a, a, a very vague tweet about having aphantasia. Yeah. That's that's mainly what I'm doing on my Twitter. You can find my podcasts, uh, Hyperfixations, and Archive Admirers wherever you get your podcasts. Hyperfixations is on Twitter, at HyperfixationsP, and on Instagram, at HyperfixationsPod. And then Archive Admirers is on Twitter, at AdmirersArchive, and on Tumblr, at Archive Admirers. Where can we find you, Tessa? <laughs> Thanks. I just want to plug really quickly. Your hot chocolate reviews are great. Sam is on Instagram more than I am. And so Sam is constantly showing me different reviews. Like he checks in every single night on your reviews. So that is adorable. I really like you asked me what were the criteria for getting a perfect 10 and I never got that. <laughs> yeah, no, I would like to know uh, because, yeah, Sam asked me every night. Like I just want he's just like, I just want to know what a perfect 10 what would be a perfect 10 hot chocolate on the Nigel scale? And I think you gave one like a 6.75 out of 10 recently. And he was just like, I want to know. I want to know like what, what, the, what, what makes something a 6.75 as opposed to a 7 or a 6. That, that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Nigel's Hot Chocolate Podcast. I would, I would listen. You can find me on Twitter at Suela Tessa. Suela is spelled S-W-E-H-L-A. You can find me on my other podcast, Monkey Off My Backlog. You can find that on Twitter and Instagram at Monkey Backlog. And you can find us on that website, www.monkeyoffmybacklog.com. I recently wrote a review of This Is How You Lose to Time War, which is one of my all-time favorite science fiction novels. You can find... Us. You can find Nanny Ogg's Book Club on Twitter at Nanny's Book Club. You can find Nanny Ogg's Book Club on Instagram at Nanny Ogg's Book Club. You can email us at Nanny Ogg's Book Club at gmail.com. Read us out, Nigel. Time unrolled in glorious uneventfulness for Dios uh, until an alien noise took the silence and did the equivalent of cutting it into small pieces with a rusty bread knife. It was a noise, in fact, like a donkey being chainsawed. As sounds went, it was to Melody what a box full of dates is to high-performance motocross. Nevertheless, as other voices joined it, similar but different, in a variety of fractured keys and broken tones, the overall effect was curiously attractive. It had lure. It had pull. It had a strange suction. The noise reached a plateau, one pure note made of a succession of discordances, and then, for just the fraction of a section, the voices split away, each along a vector. There was a stirring of the air, a flickering of the sun, 
and a dozen camels appeared over the distant hills, skinny and dusty, running towards the water. Birds erupted from the weeds, leftover saurians slid smoothly off the sandbanks. Within a minute, the shore was a mass of churned mud as the knobbly knee creatures jostled nose-deep in the water. Dios sat up and saw his staff lying in the mud. It was a little scorched, but still intact, and he noticed that somehow had never been apparent before. Before? Had there been a time before? There had certainly been a dream. Something like a dream. Each snake had its tail in its mouth. Down the slope, after the camels, his ragged family trailing behind him was a small brown figure waving a camel prod. He looked hot and very bewildered. He looked, in fact, like someone in need of good advice and careful guidance. Dios's eyes turned back to the staff. It meant something very important, he knew. He couldn't remember what, though. All he could remember was that it was very heavy, yet, at the same time, hard to put down. Very hard to put down. Better not to pick it up, he thought. Perhaps just pick it up for a while, and go and explain about gods and why pyramids were so important. And then he could put it down afterwards. Certainly. Sighing, pulling the remnants of his robes around him to give himself dignity, using the staff to steady himself, Dios went forth. The End <laughs>